Welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Garrett Schramm, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. Each year, about 20,000 new cases of acute myeloid leukemia are diagnosed in the U.S., and over 95% of those cases harbor at least one genetic mutation. Recently, there have been several drug therapies approved, but a large proportion of patients with AML lack targetable mutations. The question then becomes, how do you target the untargetable? To answer this difficult question, Dr. Allison Goldbach reviews literature supporting induction regimens for patients without targetable mutations and how clinicians can select between regimens based on patient-specific factors. Leukemia was originally recognized as a clinical entity in the mid-1800s. And since that time, there have been numerous advancements, both in the diagnosis and treatment of this disease. One of the more recent advancements was the ability for us to detect genetic mutations, as well as the development of multiple agents that can target them. However, it is important for us to recognize that there is still a large proportion of acute myeloid leukemia patients who do not harbor these genetic mutations. And the question is there posed, how do we treat them? In order for us to answer this question today, we have a few learning objectives we'll review. We'll first describe the epidemiology, pathophysiology, and prognosis of acute myeloid leukemia to build a little bit of foundational knowledge. We'll then dive into some of the literature supporting various induction regimens with a focus on those AML patients who do not harbor targetable mutations. And then finally, we'll work through a few patient cases and work through selecting various AML induction regimens based on those factors. So we'll first start with some AML background. Acute myeloid leukemia is the most common acute leukemia in adult patients, and we had about 20,000 new cases last year, which accounts for 1.1% of all new cancer cases in the U.S. Additionally, it was responsible for over 11,000 deaths in 2020 and accounted for 1.8% of all cancer deaths in the United States. The lifetime risk for the development of the disease is about half a percent and is more common in older adults, with the median age of diagnosis being 68 years old and is slightly more common in men than in women. Now, I'd like you to focus your attention on the right-hand side here, and this is information that comes from the SEER Cancer Database and looks at the overall survival rates at five years for acute myeloid leukemia patients. For all ages, the five-year overall survival rate is only about 28.7%. And as we can see, based on patients' age, there's different prognosis for them. For those patients who are less than 50, what we would consider younger patients, they have up to about 60% five-year overall survival in comparison with those patients who are 65 years and older with only about an 8.2% survival rate at five years. Now, this can be due to a number of different things. Their age may have additional comorbid conditions, may have had previous chemotherapy, or have other poor prognostic factors. Some risk factors for the development of acute myeloid leukemia include germline mutations in those hematopoietic cells, uh, prior chemotherapy exposure, specifically topoisomerase 2 inhibitors, and this can generally occur about one to five years after exposure to these agents and the development of AML. Additionally, alkylating agents are also um, one that may cause acute myeloid leukemia with a latency period of about five to 10 years after exposure. 
Patients with previous exposure to radiation therapy may also be at an increased risk for development of AML, as well as those patients with inherited bone marrow failure syndromes, genetic disorders such as Down syndrome, myelodysplastic disorders, and myeloproliferative neoplasms. Now this diagram here depicts the multipotential hematopoietic stem cell tree and how it differentiates. Acute myeloleukemia stems from a single clonogenic cell coming from the common myeloid progenitor. Now because of various genetic mutations, some that we're able to target and others that are not, these cells get stuck in what we consider the blast phase, or an immature cell that is no longer able to further differentiate. Now these blast cells pack the bone marrow, kind of weeding out the healthy bone marrow, and so we don't have good numbers of arthromocytes, erythrocytes, and other white blood cells. And because of a depletion in these cell lines, we can associate this with various signs and symptoms that patients may present with on diagnosis of acute myeloid leukemia. For those patients with neutropenia, they may present with fever or various types of infections. Patients with thrombocytopenia may have bruising or easy bleeding. And for those patients with anemia, they may complain of fatigue, dyspnea on exertion, or pale skin. Now, leukemia also has the ability to infiltrate various organs throughout the body. For those patients who have CNS involvement, they may come in with headaches, potentially seizures. It can also infiltrate the joints, causing significant pain, or something called leukemia cutis, which is when leukemia cells infiltrate the skin. Now, there is an extensive diagnostic workup that is done when we are working up a new acute leukemia patient. It is first important to get a full history and physical exam, including the patient's age and other comorbid conditions. Now, this is important, and we'll talk about this a little bit more throughout the presentation, but in determining whether or not the patient is a candidate for more intensive or less intensive induction therapy. Additionally, we get a full slew of labs, including various blood work, as well as baseline T tumor lysis syndrome labs, as these patients are at high risk upon initiation of therapy. And those include uric acid, LDH, and G6PD. Now we'll determine that there are a number of regimens that include the use of anthracyclines, and so it's important to get a cardiac evaluation for our patients, specifically those for patients who have a baseline cardiac disorder. And then finally, if patients are a transplant candidate, getting the ball rolling on workup and finding a donor is something uh, that is important to start off the bat as well, but that is outside the scope of this presentation. Additionally, it's important that we get a bone marrow biopsy as there is a whole host of information that we gather from this. First, we wanna look at the cells under the microscope so we can determine how many of those cells are in the blast phase or that immature phase versus healthy bone cells. Additionally, we run flow cytometry, which looks specifically at cell surface markers that may point us in the direction of certain hematologic malignancies. FISH is kind of a 30,000 foot view and looks at large chromosomal changes, such as those deletions or translocations. And then NGS, or next generation sequencing, is more focused on those point mutations and a lot of our targetable mutations, such as FLT3 or IDH1 and 2. Now, I'll be referring to cytogenetics throughout this presentation. And essentially what that means is a conglomerate of the information that we gather from our FISH evaluation, as well as our next generation sequencing. Now, the World Health Organization classifies acute myeloid leukemia as having 20% or more blasts either in the bone marrow or blood. Or if patients have less than 20% blast, they must have certain cytogenetic abnormalities, which are listed in the bottom left-hand corner. The seven boxes here represent large categories of acute myeloid leukemia, but there are a whole host of additional types as well. Overall, the uh, approach to therapy is fairly similar between these different types, um, but there are some nuances between them. Now, as I had mentioned, cytogenetics are gonna be discussed throughout this presentation, and this kind of depicts the importance of cytogenetics in looking at the prognosis of our patients. 
So these outcomes are for patients who were treated with standard chemotherapy, which is that 7 plus 3 regimen, and we'll touch on that here in a moment. For patients who are put into the box of having favorable risk cytogenetics, have the best prognosis, and these include those patients who have core binding factor mutations, or NPM1. For patients who were treated with our standard 7 plus 3 chemotherapy, they had a complete remission rate of about 81%, with a three-year overall survival rate at 45. Now putting this into contrast on the right-hand side here with our poor risk cytogenetic groups, such as those with a translocation 6-9, as well as a mutation in TP53, and we'll be discussing that one a lot today, their complete remission rate was only about 32%, with a three-year overall survival rate of 4%. Now, if you guys could pull out your phones and go to the Poll Everywhere app or respond online at pollev.com slash mayorx, we've come to our first question in reviewing our AML background. So which of the following is true about acute myeloid leukemia? A, cytogenetics play a key role in AML prognosis. B, pathogenesis of AML begins with a common lymphoid progenitor. C, five-year overall survival in AML is greater than 80%. And D, all patients with AML should receive intensive induction chemotherapy. I'll give everyone a moment here to go ahead and answer. All right, well, some answers are still pouring in, but it looks like the majority or everybody is uh, selected the correct answer, that cytogenetics do play a key role in AML prognosis. B is incorrect, as the pathogenesis of AML begins with the common myeloid progenitor. That's why we call it acute myeloid leukemia. The five-year overall survival rate in AML across all patients is really closer to about 28%. And D, not all patients necessarily should receive intensive induction chemotherapy based on their age or other comorbid conditions. And with that, we'll now go ahead and move into some of the literature review and looking at acute myeloid induction treatments. But before we get started into that, I think it's important that we uh, show everybody exactly the outline of therapy to understand where these regimens uh, play into this. So as we said in our workup, we'll determine whether or not a patient is a candidate for less intensive or more intensive induction therapy. Regardless of the therapy that they get, our goal is for a patient to achieve complete remission. And complete remission in acute myeloid leukemia is defined as having bone marrow blasts less than 5%, no circulating blasts in the periphery, and absence of extramedullary disease, which essentially means any disease outside of the bone marrow. Additionally, we want their counts to recover after chemotherapy, so this includes having an ANC greater than 1,000 and platelets over 100,000. If patients have not had a complete remission after their induction therapy, this is when we would move into relapse or refractory therapy, or what we call salvage chemotherapy. If they have achieved a complete remission, this is great. Um, and then we move into consolidation therapy, which can look like one of three things, either observation, maintenance therapy, or moving on to a bone marrow transplant. Now, for the purpose of today's discussion, we'll just be focusing on initial therapy for our various patients and focusing both on less intensive and more intensive induction therapy. Now, as I had mentioned in the introduction, there have been a number of different advancements most recently noted. As you can see, back in November of 1973, 7 plus 3 was originally defined, and for over about 40 years, this was truly the standard of care, where more recently, we have a number of new FDA approvals and trials that have come out, with a large portion of them focusing on those targetable mutations. However, we would like to focus today on those uh, regimens that have come out that do not focus on these, rather for those patients who don't harbor targetable mutations. Now, for the four of them that we'll be looking at uh, do have FDA approval, and I would like to note the FLAG-IDA plus venetoclax is just an interim study that was previously uh, presented on at ASH in December of 2020, but it's one that we're starting to see a little bit more here, so I would like to touch on that today. So to get everybody a little bit more familiar with each of these regimens, we have some pearls here. 
So this is 7 plus 3, or cytarabine and donorubicin. Idorubicin can also be used as an alternative. Major adverse effects from this regimen include significant myelosuppression, cardiomyopathy due to the anthracycline agent, hepatotoxicity, and a cytarabine rash called xanthomatosis pustulosis. Because of the significant and prolonged myelosuppression that has occurred, it's recommended to have prophylaxis for these patients, including an antiviral, antibacterial, and antifungal agent. Now on the right-hand side here, this kind of is a diagram that depicts a patient's neutrophil count throughout their initial induction cycle. This regimen is given as a continuous infusion of cytarabine over seven days, and then the anthracycline agent, either donorubicin or idorubicin, is given on days one, two, and three. We can expect after their chemotherapy is given that their counts drop with their nadir or their lowest neutrophil count occurring between about days 14 and 21, with their count recovery being on average about day 28, but this can definitely range between patients. We do get a bone marrow biopsy when patients are at their nadir, and this is to determine whether or not the patient's leukemia is responding to the therapy we're giving them. We also get a recovery bone marrow biopsy to make sure that when their cells do come back that the leukemia cells are not also growing back at that time. So going back to that study from 1973 that got this regimen to really be the standard of care for about 40 years, it included all adult patients at a single institution with acute non-lymphocytic leukemia. Patients could not have any previous treatment with donorubicin and would, could not currently be in remission. This included that cytarabine continuous infusion over seven days, as well as receiving donorubicin at 45 milligrams per metered squared, given on days one, two, and three. Now this study only included 17 patients, and only 16 of them were AML patients. Of the eight patients who were previously untreated, five of them were able to achieve a complete remission. And of the eight patients who had previously received some form of therapy, two achieved complete remission, and three had partial remissions. Now, throughout those 40 years, this regimen did not just stay stagnant. There have been some minor changes in terms of dosing and drugs that we've used for it. This study here, one of the more recent controversies, has been the dosing of donorubicin, whether or not we use 60 or 90 milligrams per meter squared. This study looked to compare the overall effectiveness of donorubicin at these two doses and was given in combination with cytarabine at 100 milligrams per meter squared over that seven-day continuous infusion. Now, this study was much larger than the one we just looked at and had over 1,200 patients that were included, with a majority of these patients being in that younger category and fit under 60 years old. Now, in terms of efficacy, there was not noted to be any difference in complete remission rate between the two doses. However, looking at safety, there was an increase in 60-day mortality in the higher dose group, that 90 milligrams per meter squared, which was statistically significant, and no difference in two-year overall survival. So in general, we do see the 60 milligrams per meter squared dose rather than the 90 milligrams per meter squared. Now, in an effort to make some improvements, particularly for those patients who did not necessarily have other options, this combination of liposomal, donorubicin, or cytarabine, uh, the CPX351 was the study name, uh, was put into play. The idea behind this is there is a synergistic ratio between donorubicin and cytarabine, that one to five molar ratio, um, that when it hits the leukemia cells um, has a better effect. However, in their normal formulations, it's very hard to ensure that this particular ratio gets to those leukemia cells and is uptaken. So these are put into a liposomal form, and there is noted to be an enhanced uh, uptake of these liposomes by leukemia cells rather than the uh, healthy bone marrow cells, so also thought to maybe have some additional benefits in terms of adverse effects. 
Some adverse effects that are from this uh, do include a prolonged myelosuppression longer than that than we see with 7 plus 3, likely due to that liposomal formulation and that it sticks around a little bit longer in the body. Because of this prolonged myelosuppression, we do see some rates of febrile neutropenia, various GI toxicities, and cardiotoxicity, as this still does have an anthracycline in it. The recommended prophylaxis is the same that we see in our 7 plus 3 patients. Now, as you can see on the right here, it looks pretty similar to what we see in our 7 plus 3 patients. Um, these, this drug is only given on days 1, 3, and 5 during their first induction regimen, but because of that liposomal formulation, it's thought to have a similar exposure as our 7 plus 3. Bone marrow biopsy in this is done between days 14 and 21, depending on provider preference. And the nadir is usually between about days 14 and 28, with recovery closer to day 35, so about a week later than we see in our 7 plus 3 patients. So the study that got this approved was looking at CPX and newly diagnosed secondary AML. It included patients who were 60 to 75 years old with newly diagnosed high-risk or secondary AML that was defined by the World Health Organization 2008 criteria. Now, secondary AML refers to patients having previous hematologic uh, disorders that is transformed into AML or whether or not they had received chemotherapy previously, so kind of treatment-related. It was a multi-center, phase three, randomized open-label study, and patients were stratified by their age as well as type of AML to receive either the CPX351 versus 7 plus 3. There was a total of about 309 patients who were included with a median age of 68 years old and a median follow-up of about 21 months. Now, the overall survival did favor the CPX351 group at 9.5 months versus 5.9 months in the 7.3 group, and this was statistically significant. When we look at a uh, conglomerate of the complete remission and complete remission with incomplete count recovery, there was not noted to be a statistically significant difference between the two groups. But if we just look at complete remission alone, it was statistically significant between these. Additionally, in our ASH meeting in December of 2020, some five-year follow-up data was also presented, which just reinforced the fact that there is a overall survival benefit utilizing this liposomal formulation over 7 plus 3. Now, this study also did a number of subgroup analyses, but I'd like to focus our attention in that orange box here. For those patients with therapy-related AML, meaning they've previously received chemotherapy, um, the CP351 group had a median overall survival of 12 months versus about six months in that 7 plus 3 group, which was statistically significant. Additionally, those patients with AML with antecedent myelodysplasia syndrome, or CMML, was also statistically significant in these groups. Now, because we're talking about non-targetable mutations, I think it's important to point out how the patients with these TP53 mutations uh, did. For those with this mutation, the overall survival between the two groups was not statistically significant. However, for the patients who were still in that poor risk or adverse risk cytogenetic group who were not TP53 mutated, we did note a benefit here. Because of this, uh, when patients have these TP53 mutations, uh, it's not necessarily a better idea to use the CPX351 in those patients over 7 plus 3. Now, the next few studies that we'll be looking at are combinations utilizing the drug venetoclax. So venetoclax is a BCL2 inhibitor, and BCL2 is an anti-apoptotic protein. Venetoclax bind these, which allow for the apoptotic process to continue and allow uh, these cells to become more chemosensitive. So this is used in combination with other chemotherapy agents and more of a synergistic effect. This is an oral pill that is to be taken with a meal and water at the same time of each day. And this drug does harbor a significant tumor lysis syndrome risk, so there are a few different things that we do to mitigate this. 
For patients who present with a very high white count, we utilize the drug hydroxyurea to knock this down below 25,000. Additionally, patients should get prophylactic hydration as well as allopurinol prior to the first dose. And we utilize a ramp-up schedule with this drug um, based on their target dose. So over several days, we get to that dose. Additionally, this is a major CYP3A4 substrate, and because we're using those antifungal azoles, um, we do need to make sure that we adjust this dose, and there are specific recommendations in the package insert for that. Another thing just to be aware of is this is a P-glycoprotein substrate as well. So the first study that we'll be looking at with combinations of venetoclax is the Viole A study, which included azacitidine plus venetoclax. This included patients who were 18 years or older with previously untreated AML who were ineligible for standard induction therapy or that intensive induction therapy, either due to comorbid conditions or elderly age. This was a phase three randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial that randomized patients two to one to receive azacitidine plus venetoclax or placebo. Our primary outcome of interest was overall survival with secondary ones being multiple efficacy and safety outcomes as well as patient reported quality of life. Now this study included over 400 patients with a median age of 76, so a little bit older than we've seen in our previous studies, with a median duration of follow-up of about 21 months. Median overall survival was statistically beneficial in the azacitidine venetoclax versus the placebo group with 14.7 months versus 9.6 months, as well as the composite uh, complete remission rate being 66.4% in the venetoclax versus 28% um, in the placebo group. Now, as we can see with the efficacy data here is there is that synergistic effect that we were hoping for with the azacitidine and venetoclax. So there was concern that there may be a synergistic effect in terms of the adverse effect rate as well. However, this was not found to be the case and that the uh, adverse effect rates were consistent with each individual agent and these particular patients that were being treated. The subgroup analysis from this study will be focusing on the bottom portion of this chart here with the purple box as we're looking at these non-targetable mutations. I'd like to point out specifically these patients who are TP53 mutated, as we know this is a poor risk cytogenetic group, and their rate of response for our azacitidine venetoclax group was over 50% versus that group with just azacitidine alone, which had zero patients respond. So this is quite significant and higher than what we've seen in some of our previous studies. The next combination that we'll look at is low-dose cytarabine in combination with venetoclax, and this is the VIOLE-C study. This again included adult patients with AML who were ineligible for that intensive chemotherapy. It was a phase three randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial that again randomized patients two to one to receive venetoclax or placebo in those 28-day cycles plus low-dose cytarabine on days one through 10. Our outcomes of interest were overall survival as well as response rate, transfusion independence, and event-free survival. This study had a little bit over 200 patients that were included with a median age of 76 and a median duration of follow-up at their initial pre-plan analysis of 12 months. Now, I would like to point out that it is interesting that at the pre-plan analysis, there was not a statistically significant difference between our combination with venetoclax versus placebo. However, when an additional six-month follow-up was completed, there was noted to be a statistically significant difference with 8.4 months of overall survival in the venetoclax group versus 4.1 in that placebo group. There was also noted to be a higher rate of complete uh, remission by the initiation of cycle two. And again, similar to our VIOLEC study, the rates of adverse effects were consistent with each particular agent that was used as well as this population that was being treated. Now we'll look at the subgroup analyses here again, focusing on this TP53 group. For the patients treated with a low-dose cytarabine and venetoclax, we noted 18% response rate versus that 0% in our low-dose cytarabine and placebo group. 
putting this in combination, we can't fully uh, compare them because they're not the same study, but we did have a much higher response rate for our TP53 mutated patients and our VIOLE-A study, so that combination with azacitidine. Our next drug that we'll be looking at is glastigib. So glastigib is a hedgehog inhibitor, which I think is kind of a fun mechanism. Uh, the hedgehog pathway plays a role in stem cell proliferation and differentiation and plays a role in chemotherapy resistance of our cancer cells. Glastigib box blocks the SMO receptor in this pathway, allowing for chemosensitivity to be reinstated. So this is another drug that we use in combination with additional chemotherapy agents to ensure um, that synergistic effect as well. This, again, is an oral pill that is to be taken at the same time of day with or without food. And this is not a particularly clean mechanism of action, so we do see a pretty significant adverse effect profile, including some electrolyte abnormalities, GI upset, increase in LFTs as well as serum creatinine, and QTC prolongation is something to look out for. This is also a major CYP3A4 substrate, so looking out for various drug interactions. And per the FDA approval, these patients should be treated for a minimum of six cycles to allow for time for clinical response. Now, the study that got this combination approved was the Bright AML1003 study, which looked at the combination of low-dose cytarabine plus glastigib. Patients were included if they were adults with high-risk uh, MDS, or myelodysplastic syndrome, or AML who are ineligible for that intensive chemotherapy, either due to age, performance status, or poor um, organ function. This was a phase two open-label multi-center trial that randomized patients two to one to receive cytarabine on days one through 10, plus or minus glastigib in those 28-day cycles. And the primary outcome of interest was overall survival. This, patient, this uh, population included 132 patients at a median age of 76 years old, and median duration of follow-up was about 21 months. There was noted to be a statistically significant difference in terms of median overall survival for this combination of low-dose cytarabine plus glastigib versus the low-dose cytarabine alone at 8.8 versus 4.9 months. Additionally, there was noted to be a statistic difference in terms of complete response rate at 17% versus 2.3%. However, although these numbers look very good, I think it's important, again, we compare this to some of our other regimens. A response rate of 17% is quite poor compared to what we've seen in several of our other trials, which has been much higher in the 60s or 70s percents. Uh, duration of treatment was about three months, and the duration of response was about 10 months in our combination group. Like I had said on the previous slide, this does has a pretty nasty adverse effect profile because it's not a particularly clean drug. And over half of the patients in the glastigib arm versus a third of the patients in the uh, low-dose cytarabine group uh, temporarily had to discontinue treatment to some of these adverse effects. Now, this study, with it being a phase two trial, there was not enough patients with uh, certain targetable genetic mutations or other genetic mutations to really draw strong conclusions, as well as at this point in time, the TP53 mutated data has not been released to date, so we can't make strong conclusions or thoughts about that at this time. And the last regimen that we'll be looking at today is this combination of FLAG, IDA, plus venetoclax. So this looks like a pretty complicated regimen. This is one of our more intense regimens that we see, um, and is the one that I had mentioned previously is not currently FDA approved, and this was an interim analysis. So the idea behind this regimen is, as we've seen, venetoclax combinations have been quite effective in our acute myeloid leukemia patients. So utilizing this in a, another drug combination that we use, as we've seen, cytarabine, and in this case, idorubicin, or that anthracycline, as we also know, is effective. Additionally, fludarabine is a purine analog, which also has um, efficacy in AML. So putting these all together to hopefully get a synergistic effect. 
Now, this study included adult patients with either newly diagnosed or relapsed refractory acute myeloid leukemia. And the phase 1b was a dose escalation that just included those relapsed refractory patients. And the phase 2 dose expansion included two arms with the newly diagnosed and relapsed refractory ones. The primary um, area of interest was safety and tolerability in that phase 1b trial, where the secondary analysis looked at kind of more of those efficacy outcomes. This trial so far has included a total of 62 patients with an overall response rate among all of our groups of 84%. 83% of these patients achieved what we call MRD negative complete remission. And MRD is minimum residual disease, so essentially non-detectable disease anymore. Now our focus today is looking at those newly diagnosed or using this as an induction. So if you look in that middle column, they had an overall response rate of 89% with 96% of those achieving that minimum residual disease negative complete remission. Now, although it's not the focus today, I think it is important to point out the significant benefit of the addition of venetoclax in our relapsed refractory patients. And the 35 patients uh, included to date, their overall response rate was 66%. In comparison with our regular flag IDA that does not include venetoclax in the upper right-hand corner, their relapsed refractory complete remission rate was only 21%, so really seeing some of that synergy in these patients. Um, at this point in time, the data has still needs to mature, so we don't have uh, median overall survival rates for these groups. This is, as I had mentioned, a fairly intensive regimen, as you could see with the many number of different chemotherapy agents that we use. And so grade 3 and 4 adverse drug events included many infectious complications, such as febrile neutropenia and bacteremia, as well as some electrolyte disturbances and increased ALT. Now, at this point to date, uh, the 30-day mortality of these patients was 0%, with a 60-day mortality rate of about 4.8%. But it is to note that only relapsed refractory patients to date were the ones that had passed away. Now, I do want to share this TP53 information that, again, was presented just in December of 2020. Um, although it was only 10 patients, this does look fairly promising, so it will be interesting to see more mature data come out in the future. For all of the patients, both newly diagnosed and relapsed refractory, there was a total of 10 patients, with six of them achieving a complete remission or overall response rate. Specifically for those patients with newly diagnosed AML with these TP53 mutations, all three of them did respond. And this is still a very small number, so we can't make sure that all of these patients would respond, but does look quite promising. So now we've gone through a lot of information in terms of these different chemotherapy regimens, so now we'll kind of walk through a few patient cases to really nail this in. But before we do that, let's kind of summarize everything that we've learned um, and kind of compare these regimens. On the left-hand side in the green boxes here, these are for those fit and younger patients, as we would consider this more intensive chemotherapy. This is um, the CPX351 group does kind of have an exception, as it's only been studied in those patients who are 60 to 75 years old. And although the FDA approval is not just for this group, it can cause issues when getting this approved from insurance. For those patients receiving either 7 plus 3 or that CPX351, they do need to be anthracycline eligible, meaning that they have not already received their lifetime maximum dose of their anthracycline agents with previous therapy and have pretty good cardiac function. CPX351 is only approved for those therapy-related uh, AMLs or AML with myelodysplastic-related changes. And as well, we had not noted that there was really any benefit of using CPX351 for those TP53-mutated patients over 7 plus 3. Now, for FLAGI and venetoclax, we had mentioned that data from that phase 1b2 study, but we still need some additional data to really determine this particular combination's place in therapy. Now, on the right-hand side here, we look more at these less intensive regimens for our unfit and more elderly patients. 
For azocytidine and venetoclax, it did have quite a bit of very positive data in terms of a good response rate from our TP53 mutated patients. So this may be an area that this drug can be used. Additionally, low-dose cytarabine and venetoclax had some less favorable TP53 mutated data, so it may not be as good as the azocytidine venetoclax group in this particular patient. And then the combination of glastigib and low-dose uh, cytarabine, it really was a poor overall response rate, only at 17%. And at this time, the TP53 mutated data is unavailable, so we really can't make any conclusions in regards to that. So now we'll introduce our first patient case. We have a 39-year-old gentleman who presents to the emergency department with complaints of shortness of breath on exertion, fatigue, and easy bruising. His past medical history is significant for hyperlipidemia, and his labs are here as below. His ANC is low at 0.4. He has 34% of those circulating blasts. Serum creatinine is 0.7 at baseline, and his hepatic function appears to be within normal limits. Looking at his CBC, he is noted to be neutropenic, thrombocytopenic, and anemic, which can kind of point us to some of those symptoms that he presented with. Now, when his bone marrow biopsy comes back, this can take several days, it was noted to be consistent with AML. He has hypercellular, hypercellular marrow, so all of those blasts packing that marrow, with 60% of them being blasts. So between the 34% blast or the 60% blast, he meets that criteria for acute myeloid leukemia. Additionally, when his cytogenetics return, we note for him to have a translocation 6-9 mutation and a split 3 negative. So breaking this down, he's young, otherwise fairly healthy, has good renal and hepatic function, his cytogenetics are poor risk, and has no actionable mutations. So taking that information to, into account, if you could go ahead and pull out your phones again or log in online, we'll answer the following question. Given this patient case, what AML induction regimen would you choose for this patient? A, liposomal donorubicin cytarabine, or that CPX351, cytarabine and donorubicin 7 plus 3, the combination of azocytidine venetoclax, or D, low-dose cytarabine glastigib. I'll give everybody a minute or, here or two to go ahead and answer. All right, some answers may still be coming in, but we can go ahead and talk about each of these. So I would agree with the majority here that I would probably choose the standard 7 plus 3 in this particular patient. As we had stated, he is a younger patient, otherwise healthy with good organ function, and therefore would likely be a candidate for intensive chemotherapy, uh, which is why I would choose this particular agent. I can appreciate those people who did choose A, as this is also an intensive induction regimen. However, we do need to remember that this was studied only in that older population of 60 to 75, and is only FDA approved for that therapy-related AML, or AML with myelodysplastic changes, which this gentleman does not fall into that category. Azocytidine venetoclax, I think, would potentially be an option if he doesn't respond to 7 plus 3, but as we mentioned, he is likely a candidate for intensive um, induction therapy, so I would, again, choose B over C. And then I'm glad that nobody chose D, glastigibin cytarabine, as this does, again, have a very poor overall response rate and would not be the best first-line option for this gentleman. Now, everybody did pretty good with that question, so we're going to take a level up, and this is going to be slightly more challenging. So I'll introduce you to our second patient case here. He, this is a 74-year-old female who presents to the emergency department with fevers, chest pain, and dyspnea on exertion. Her past medical history is much more significant. She has a history of breast cancer after receiving um, AC, which is a combination of doxorubicin and cyclophosphamide, as well as a bilateral mastectomy in 2015. She has hypertension, CHF with a left ventricular ejection fraction of 40%, history of an MI two years ago, as well as CKD stage 3. Her labs are significant for a low ANC at 0.2, 5% circulating blast, 
and a serum creatinine at 1.8, which is about her baseline. Looking at her CBC, she is also noted to be thrombocytopenic, neutropenic, and anemic, which again can point us to those symptoms that she presented with. When her bone marrow, bone marrow biopsy returns a few days later, it shows to be consistent with therapy-related AML. Again, this is noted to be hypercellular marrow, so having a whole bunch of blasts in there, and 27% of those are blasts, so meeting that criteria for acute myeloid leukemia at that greater than 20%. When her cytogenetics returns, she is noted to be TP53 mutated and FLT3 negative. So what we can glean from this case is she is older with multiple comorbidities, has impaired renal function, and has poor risk cytogenetics, no actionable mutations, and is noted to have treatment-related AML. So with that information, again, I'll ask you to answer the following question. Given this patient case, what AML induction regimen would you choose for this patient? The CPX351, 7 plus 3, azacitidine venetoclax, or low-dose cytarabine plus glastigib? All right, so there still may, may be some answers coming through, but let's talk about each of these answers. So for A, liposomal donorubicin and cytarabine, it looks like I could trick a couple of you guys up. So she does have that therapy-related AML and also falls into that category of that 60 to 75-year range. However, she's previously received a good chunk of anthracycline and has poor cardiac function at baseline. So I would assume that she's probably not a great anthracycline candidate and therefore would not be eligible to receive the CPX351 combination. But I like your thought process. B, cytarabine and donorubicin. Again, for similar reasons, she's likely not a candidate for intensive chemotherapy at this time and has poor cardiac function at baseline. I would agree with the majority here that I would choose azacitidine and venetoclax for our patient, not only because it's that less intensive chemotherapy, but also because we have pretty good data that supports the use of this and TP53 mutated with that response rate of about 55%. And again, I'm glad nobody chose D, that low-dose cytarabine and glastigib. It just has a poor overall response rate and is rightly seen in practice. So I'm glad we've learned a lot today. I'm sure more, many of you have never heard of a lot of these regimens before, so let's just kind of summarize everything here. AML accounts for about 1% of new cancer cases per year in the U.S., and there have been many recent advancements in acute myeloid leukemia treatment that have expanded our options for patients beyond just that standard 7 plus 3. Additionally, as we've noted in these two patient cases, it's very important to consider those patient-specific factors when we're choosing various AML induction regimens. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics.